0: Okay, you're in Revelation chapter 7. Have you ever wondered if there's ever going to be a worldwide spiritual Christian revival? Have you ever wondered about that? Or better yet, have you ever prayed for a worldwide revival? Well, if you have ever wondered about such a thing, or if you have ever prayed for it, you will be glad to know that the greatest spiritual Christian revival that the world has ever known is yet to come. Contrary... To what postmillennialists teach, which is that the church of Jesus Christ, you and I, the church, will conquer unbelief and that the church will convert the globe's masses, the people of the world, and therefore actualize the kingdom of God on earth. You know, it's the church that's going to bring in the kingdom. That's what postmillennialists teach. Well, contrary to that, the world will never be converted by the church. The biblical teaching is that at the time of the rapture, Christendom in general is going to be in a state of what? Apostasy. Remember when we studied the seventh church, the church of the Laodiceans? The church or Christendom in general, I should say, will be more influenced by the world than the world being influenced by her. A truth which very few people probably realize is that the greatest revival, Christian revival, that this world will ever see is going to occur during the time of the seven years of tribulation. And that's good news, isn't it? Especially when we've been looking at all these judgments. This coming spiritual revival, which will be God's answer to the prayers of many of the church saints, you know, all down through the church age, through church history, many people have been praying for a spiritual revival. This will be God's answer to that prayer, so don't stop praying it, you know, for a worldwide revival. This answer to prayer is prophetically described for us in the chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning, chapter 7. Following the descriptions of the six, the first six seal judgments, which John recorded for us in chapter 6, we find a parenthetical break in the judgments. And that parenthetical break comes in chapter 7. Chapter 7 itself is the break. And then uh, John will go on to discuss for us the the uh, breaking of the seventh seal in chapter 8 verse 1. So there is a parenthesis or a break between the sixth and the seventh seal judgments as there is also going to be a, a break, a parenthetical break between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgments. And again we'll see another parenthetical break between the sixth and the seventh vile or bold judgments. Now these parenthetical breaks in the chronological flow of the book of Revelation are what we referred to back in our one of our introductory lessons, not as the up and down movement, but as the what? Right, the back and forth movement. These interludes are used to fill in some of the details about some of the events that we've already read, or to help explain some of the action that was just described, or, you know, just to give us a little bit more information that maybe wasn't given to us elsewhere, or else to answer some of the questions that the readers of the book might be formulating in their minds as they're reading. And speaking of questions, this is precisely what Revelation chapter 7 does. It answers the question asked at the end of chapter 6. Do you remember what that question was in verse 17? Yeah, who shall be able to stand? The question followed John's description of those uh, first six seal judgments where we learned about deception and deprivation and disease and destruction and death, death to about one-fourth of the world, we were told, and we learned that um, many would be swallowed up by hell, which meant that they were unbelievers, right? Because believers aren't swallowed up by hell. And then we learned about how many others would be martyred for their faith in Christ as we looked at the breaking of the fifth seal judgment. And that either an earthquake or something like a nuclear holocaust would involve the entire earth. And that was the sixth seal judgment and we know that that would probably also take many lives so the question was asked at the end of that chapter about you know referring to all those six seal judgments who in the world is going to be able to stand through all this is there going to be anybody who will be able to stand firm during the time of this tribulation period and if so who Well, the answer to that question is what's given to us in chapter 7. There are going to be two groups of people who will indeed be able to stand. One group consists of 144,000 sealed Jews. And that we will be looking at in verses 4 to 8. And the other group will consist of an uncountable number of saved Gentiles. Verses 9 to 17. Evidently, while the wicked Antichrist is going forth conquering and to conquer, making his political advances, the Holy Spirit will be very busy working on drawing people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit, remember, is still going to be active on the earth. Even though he will not be involved in his restraining of evil ministry, he still will be drawing people to himself, or to Christ. Now, chapters 5, 6, and 7 actually form a very interesting triplet. Back in chapter 5, we had a heavenly look, remember, at the standing slain lamb who received the worship and the acclamation of the entire universe, and the theme song, the worshipful theme song of the universe was with regard to the worthiness of the lamb. I don't know if you can see that, my pen still has trouble getting absorbed. But they sang about the worthiness of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was able to take that scroll titled deed out of the right hand of God the Father. Well, then in chapter 6, we watched as those six seals were loosed and judgments fell upon the earth and all of its inhabitants. And chapter 6 concluded with men actually crying out to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them to hide them from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from what else? From the wrath of the lamb. So, chapter 6, we saw the results of the wrath of the lamb. Then, following a look, whoops, forgot to follow up on that. There's the wrath of the lamb. So, following a look at the worthiness of the lamb in chapter 5, and then the wrath of the lamb in chapter 6, we now come to chapter 7, where we are going to look at the work of the lamb. The work of the Lamb is displayed mightily in this chapter. His great work involves bringing many people to a saving knowledge in himself, even in the midst of his own judgments. So this interlude chapter, chapter 7, was placed between the 6th and the 7th seal judgments in order to show the Lord's mercy even in the midst of his wrath. That's a principle he follows all the way through the book of Revelation. In his wrath, he still remembers mercy. Now, in our discussion of this chapter, this will be our outline. The name of our lesson today is Those Able to Stand. In our discussion, we're going to look at three groups of beings. The first group consists of five servant angels, and those we will look at in verses 1 to 3. And we're going to learn how they are used by God in this parenthetical break between the recording of the 6th and the 7th seal judgments. And then we're going to consider part 2, 144,000 sealed Jews, verses 4 to 8. And then to conclude our lesson this morning, we will look at an innumerable group of saved Gentiles in the rest of the chapter. So... With that introduction, let's look now at verses 1 to 3 as we consider five servant angels. John says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. The loosing of the seventh seal, which we will look at next week, Lord willing, releases the seven trumpet judgments, right? got that down now, you know that when the seventh seal is loosed, that brings forth the seven trumpet judgments. And the blowing of the seventh trumpet judgment brings about what? The seven vile judgments or the seven bowl judgments. So we could say that even though there have already been some catastrophic, catastrophic judgments brought to the earth by the first six seal judgments, which we have already looked at, the world hasn't seen the worst of it by any means yet, right? God, in his infinite mercy, therefore, will briefly suspend the storm of pending judgment so that he will be able to demonstrate his grace on those who are willing to accept it. The agents that God uses, that he chooses to use to suspend this judgment are his servants, the holy angels. The work and the activities... Of angels, as you well know, are discussed quite a bit in the Word of God. All the way back we see them as early as um, when God is creating the earth. We read about the presence of the angels at the time of creation. And then during the Lord's earthly life, we learned about how angels ministered to him during, throughout his whole life, didn't they? And they minister to who now? you and I they minister to the church saints in this age well after the church is raptured after we are gone the angels become very very prominent and they are mentioned quite a bit if you would go through your concordance and read how many times the word angel or angels appears in the book of revelation you will see that it far outnumbers any other book of the bible They are mentioned tremendously in the book of Revelation, particularly as being associated with the administration of the forces of nature. Now, here in verse 1, they are seen restraining. I didn't have a picture of that, so I'm just going to keep putting angels up here. But they're seen restraining the four winds from the four compass points of the earth. North, south, east, and west. In chapter 8, which we'll get to next week, they present the trumpet judgments. They're the ones who blow those trumpets. Chapter 16, they're the ones who pour out the vile judgments on the earth. And in chapter 14, verse 18, we're going to read about an angel who has power over fire. And in Revelation sixteen five, John records the words of the angel of the waters. God controls nature, right? There's no such thing as Mother Nature. It's God who has control over nature. And during the time of the tribulation, he is going to use the forces of nature to judge mankind. And he will use his special ministers, the holy angels, to administer his plans. Now in chapter 7, we find that the angels actually supervise The administration of two important events. First of all, they control the winds, as we said, from the four compass points of the earth. Um, John says there, let's look at that, verse 1. And he saw four angels standing on the four corners. That doesn't mean that there's... You know, literally corners of the world. You you can't say the Bible is unscientific because it says four corners. Even scientists talk about four corners. It's talking about north, south, east, and west, four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth: the wind from the north, the wind from the south, the wind from the east, and wind from the which one did I miss? West. Thank you. (laughs) Now, so first of all, we see that they control the winds during this parenthetical break in the storm secondly they seal 144,000 special servants of God who we are going to discuss in part two of our outline then a fifth angel comes Uh, we see him in verse two a fifth angel comes from the east which is very interesting talk about that later And he brings with him the seal of the living God. And in a loud voice, notice how many times it says they're loud. All the people in this book, all the beings are always loud. In a loud voice, he commands, yeah, well, that's true. He's got to cover the whole earth. That's right. He has to reach the four corners. He has to be loud. In a loud voice, he commands the four angels of the winds to hold off from hurting the earth and the sea until when? What does he say? "...until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads." Well, I had that up there, but now you can't see it. That's what he was saying. Now, the implication here is that the remaining judgments of God are impending. They are going to happen. But prior to being implemented by the holy angels, God is going to set apart and protect 144,000 of his servants with his own unique seal. Now, these sealed servants are set apart as his divine remnant. They are to be a testimony of Christ to the world and a testimony of God's grace and mercy even during the greatest time of his judgment. So let's consider now these divinely sealed servants and who they possibly might be. Actually, we know who they are. Scripture is very clear on that. As you will hear me read as we now look at verses 4 to 8. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of, everybody say it together, Israel, the children of Israel. Now, to make sure we get, get this, goes on and says, of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. This sounds redundant. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Naphtali or Nephtali were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000 you think the Holy Spirit went to all that trouble for nothing? It is truly amazing how many different ideas there have been as to the identity of these 144,000 sealed individuals of Revelation chapter 7. By the way, we are going to be looking, where's my outline? As we consider these people, we are going to look at their persons, who they are then their protection, and then their purpose, because with regard to all three of those um, things, their personal protection and their purpose, there has been a lot of controversy. But most of all, I guess there's been more controversy about their persons. The Seventh-day Adventists, for example, claim that these 144,000 apply to the faithful of their communion. In other words to those who will be found observing the Sabbath on Saturday and not on Sunday when the Lord returns. These will be the 144,000. For many years the Jehovah's Witnesses have taught that these 144,000 were them. However, as the number of JWs increased it's now well over 144,000 in their membership they were presented with a slight problem with which they had to deal so they were compelled to change their doctrine and now they teach that the 144,000 will consist of those who are in the higher ranks of the Jehovah's Witnesses due to all of their hard labor and their witnessing for Jehovah and that's why they're so intent on knocking on as many doors as they possibly can these 144,000 then will be the privileged Jehovah's witnesses who will be able to share in Christ's rule and reign during the millennial kingdom at least that's what they say what they claim the mormons also claim to be the 144,000 however again because their number far far exceeds this amount they state that these 144,000 will have some will be some type of very exclusive group within Mormonism, those who have achieved a higher level of spiritual maturity than the rest. And there's a very absurd cult known as the Flying Roll. Have you ever heard of that one? The Flying Roll. I've never heard of it either. And they also claim that the 144,000 are they, except that they say it will only be those in their sect who have their blood so cleansed I just can't imagine this. Their blood has become so cleansed that they cannot die. And therefore, they have accomplished immortal life on earth. And they will be the ones included in this 144,000. Well, besides these cults, there are a lot of other cults whose leaders also lay claim to their particular followers being the 144,000. Sealed ones of Revelation chapter seven. I think it's interesting that since all of these cults plan on being around during the trip time of the tribulation, that at least in that they are correct. <laughs> now I'm millennialist. You like that, huh? I'm millennialist, and here we get a little more closer to home. <clears throat> State They state, now you remember, amillennialists are those who do not believe in a literal millennial kingdom. You can read about that while I'm talking and see what they stand for. And many of our churches around us this morning are taught by amillennialists or headed up, led by amillennialists. They state that the 144,000 symbolically represent the church, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, since they do not believe in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, And instead, they interpret all of the millennial prophecies of Scripture as being fulfilled in eternity future. They view the church as yet being present at the time of the Lord's second coming, that the church will be present right up till the Lord comes, and that when he comes, he won't set up a kingdom. He will just judge the earth and then immediately bring in the eternal state. Now, the amillennialist views God's promises to Israel as having been fulfilled in the, what? In the church. That the promises God made to Israel are not going to be fulfilled to Israel, but they're going to be fulfilled and are being fulfilled to the church instead. Therefore, the amillennialist sees no specific future for the nation of Israel. To them, it's just a coincidence that Israel is back in the land today. And this really, this teaching is nothing more, if you think about it, I heard David Hunt on a tape this week say the same thing, and I said, that's right, it really is. He he said, and I believe too, that this is nothing more than another form of anti-Semitism, which has crept its way into a large portion of Christendom. So at any rate, the amillennialist sees the 144,000 as representing the church. And they say the 12,000 uh, stand behind each one of the 12 apostles. Well, I don't know about you, but that's not exactly what I read when I read the scripture there. I didn't see the names of Peter, John, and James. Did you? etc. cetera. However... All of the interpretations which view the 144,000 sealed people as anyone other than Jews have overlooked one very simple fact, haven't they? The one I just mentioned. The scripture itself very clearly goes out of its way to tell us that the 144,000 are composed of 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Thank you. Verse 4 says there were sealed in 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then to make sure and that's supposed to be 144,000 in each one of those squares. Okay? I don't know if you can tell that. There, there's little people there. To make sure that the readers understand verses 5 to 8 specifically spell out for us that 12,000 come from each one of the following tribes. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now the listing of each one of those tribes would be irrelevant, wouldn't it? If they were not specifically the people of Israel. There's not a Gentile among these people. These are Jews. There are no Gentiles included. So the next time a cult member tells you that he is planning or hoping to be one of the 144,000, just ask him what tribe he comes from and see what he says. Because do you know that even the Jews cannot tell you what tribe they come from unless they happen to have a last name like Levi. Then it's pretty clear. Or Cohen, which also refers to the tribe of Leah. But other than that, they have no idea because their records were destroyed in 70 AD. And, of course, God's records haven't been destroyed. He knows exactly what tribe every Jew on the earth comes from. But the Jews themselves do not know. Now, in response to those who believe that the 144,000 represent the church, we can again answer that there is not here a gentile among them and yet how many of you are gentiles would you raise your hand doesn't the church consist primarily of gentiles yet there's not a gentile listed here furthermore it's very important to know that when israel is named in the scripture you know what it always means israel <laughs> When Israel is mentioned, it always means Israel. It doesn't mean the church. The term Israel is never used outside of the descendants of Jacob. Remember, it was Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. As God had said to Lot before he destroyed Sodom, he said, I cannot do anything till thou become thither. In other words, Lot, until you get out of there, I can't destroy Sodom. So, also, he will not allow the great tribulation to develop to its fullest until he has made certain that there will be a remnant of believing Jews when his son returns. Now, a further indication, besides the common sense literal interpretation or meaning of the scripture, that the 144,000 are Jews is the obvious distinction which is made between them and the innumerable multitude from all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues which follows in verses 9 to 17. We'll be studying about them next. There's a distinction. Well, why make any distinction at all here in this chapter if the 144,000 represent the church? Because the innumerable number of White-robed, you can see there in white robes in verse 9, palm-bearing saints, would also have to represent the church, both Jew and Gentile, if one takes an amillennial view, if one believes that the church is still around at this point in time. Then the 144,000 they say represent the church well so do the the multitude who've been martyred and they're in heaven they also represent the church so why even make any distinction at all between the two groups well the reason for the distinction is obvious it's because the 144,000 do not represent the church they are a sealed and saved remnant of Israel and the white robed palm-bearing saints who appear standing before God's throne in this latter half of the chapter are the saved tribulation saints, not the church saints, the tribulation saints who are brought to Christ as a result of the witness of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. That's why they're mentioned right behind them, to show us how successful these 144,000 Jews have been in reaching Many, many people across the world. Well, it's interesting to point out that there are 19 arrangements, 19 different arrangements of Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, which are given to us in the Old Testament. And each one of them is different from the other. I'm talking about who's there and who's listed first, second, third, fourth. 19 different arrangements. And this list here in chapter 7 is different from all of those. For one thing, Judah here is listed first. You notice that? Judah, in verse 5, is the first one mentioned, rather than Reuben, who is, was Jacob's oldest son. He should have been mentioned first, but Judah is mentioned first here. Why do you think this is? Well, it's because Judah was the tribe from which came who? Christ, the Messiah. And the Lord Jesus Christ is preeminent, particularly in the book of Revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. So here, Judah is mentioned first. Now, there are some omissions in John's list of the twelve tribes. One is that of Dan. Dan is not mentioned here. Neither is Ephraim. Manasseh is mentioned But Joseph's other son, Ephraim, is not included. Do you remember that Joseph, who was the father of Manasseh and Ephraim, his two sons, Joseph was given a double portion of blessing by his father, Jacob, when Jacob was giving out the blessings on his deathbed in Genesis chapter 49. So really, it isn't very strange that Joseph stands in the place of one of his sons, that he's standing in the place of his son, Ephraim. However, instead of Dan, the tribe of Levi is included here. Now, Levi was the tribe of the priesthood, and they had no inheritance of land like the other tribes. You can read about it in Numbers 18, verse 20 to 24. They had no inheritance of land because who was their inheritance? God was their inheritance, and they were to receive Instead of the land, they were to receive one-tenth of the tithes from the heave offering from the other tribes. Now, although the tribe of Levi is not mentioned in other lists, then, which deal with land inheritance, here we find that it is mentioned in this list regarding the 144,000 sealed witnesses of the tribulation days, whereas the tribe of Dan is not included. Now, why do you suppose that might be? Well, very likely, it's because the tribe of Dan apostatized, and they forsook their land inheritance. Remember when we studied about land inheritance, they were never to give up their land? Well, they did. They left their land, and they went to another place and took it over, killed all the people in that particular area, and took it over and turned totally to idolatry. You can read about that in Judges 18. So... I thought that as I was studying about the fact that Dan is not listed here, that it was interesting to find out that Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord, the only apostate apostle, that he was the only one of the original 12 apostles who came from the tribe of Dan. And it's also interesting to know that Dan's symbol, and you can read this in Genesis 49, verse 16 or 17, I forget which one, but Daniel, Dan's symbol... Remember the symbol of Judah was a lion. They all had their symbols that they put on their banners. What do you think the symbol of Dan's tribe was? Serpent. Symbol of a serpent. How appropriate. And some people believe that the Jewish descendants of Dan, who are, of course, only known by God, that they will be the ones who will influence Israel into accepting the Antichrist as her Messiah. That's a very interesting speculation. So God will not privilege Dan With the honor of being his special witnesses, you know, bringing in many souls into his eternal kingdom in the last days. That's only fair, that Dan shouldn't be given this special privilege when she apostatized and turned to pagan gods. However, he will, God does keep his promises. And he will keep his land promise to the tribe of Dan. Because Dan is included in the tribal inheritance uh, list for the millennial kingdom that we find in Ezekiel 48, verses 1 to 2. Well, we've talked about their persons, the 144,000, and who they are. Let's look now at their protection, because there's been some debate about this as well. In some way, these 144,000 Jews will have the seal of God placed in their foreheads, it tells us, in verse 3. And this will be placed there by the five angels. Here, this picture only shows one angel, but remember that fifth angel said, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So all five of those angels did this. They put the seal there. Now, we don't know if this seal will be visible or invisible. I personally think it will be invisible because it says, in the forehead so we don't know if it will be dogmatically, if it will be visible or invisible. My guess is it's invisible, but we do know what the seal will be. Do you know that? We know. We don't know from this chapter, but if you flip over to 14.1 and read that first verse there, we find that John says, and I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. This is when the Lord comes, the second coming. This is just a A foreshadow of that John is seeing ahead in the future and with him were a hundred and forty and four thousand having what his father's name written in their foreheads so the seal you can go back to chapter seven the seal of these saved Jews is going to be the name of God the father in their foreheads and this stands in direct contrast to the unbelievers who will receive the mark of the antichrist Upon their foreheads. And the Greek word which is used for seal in Revelation chapter 7 is the exact same word that John used when he spoke about the seals that were on that scroll title deed. Same word. Um, it's not the word which is used. In the book of Revelation to speak about the mark of the beast it's a completely different Greek word now the word mark used for the you know the 666 implies a brand or a tattoo and this is one of the reasons I do not believe that the mark on the 144,000 is going to be a visible mark because tattoos and brands were what were used by pagans in their rituals and their ceremonies. So if you're thinking about going to get a tattoo, please don't do it. (laughs) Now, just as the seals of the scroll, which Christ took from the right hand of God the Father, were there as a means of security and protection, the divine seal which will be placed upon the 144,000 will protect them from the judgments which will hurt the earth and the sea. Seals were often made by um, signet rings. You've seen this in some of the movies where a king with a big ring, you know, would stamp something. It would give The king would give official validity to documents, or he would authenticate those documents um, as belonging to him. Likewise, in the Bible, a seal indicates ownership. You know, you and I, as saints of the church age, are sealed, aren't we? Who are we sealed by? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our seal of guarantee, we could call him, that we are saved and we are eternally secure because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, although some people believe that the sealing of the 144,000 Jews will merely indicate that they belong to Christ, but does not mean that they will be protected from death, some do believe that, Yet most Bible scholars, actually everyone that I had, says that this is a protective ceiling from death. Those who are mentioned in the um, latter half of this chapter, the great multitude that no one could count, these people are in heaven because they have suffered death during the tribulation. They have been martyred for their faith. But the 144,000 are not seen in heaven, are they? They're they're down on earth doing their work. You would think that at least some of them would be seen in heaven. And then, if you go back to Revelation 14:1 that we just looked at, when Christ returns to Mount Zion, who is there at the foot of the mountain with him when he comes back? We see the 144,000 with him. This indicates that they have survived to the end, which is what Dr. John Walver Walvoord teaches. Now, the divine sealing will protect these chosen Jews from the judgments of God, which will hurt the earth and the sea and the trees when the angels sound the trumpet judgments and when the judgments really intensify as these atrocious scorpion-like locusts are released from the pit. We'll read about in Revelation chapter 9. I think that's some of them up there pictured although we have no idea what they look like. And then as the vile judgments pour out upon the earth in rapid-fire succession, destroying many people in Revelation chapter 16, these witnesses are protected divinely from all of that. If they weren't, they would probably mostly perish and wouldn't be able to get the gospel message to the world. Now, I mentioned earlier when I was reading about the fifth angel who comes from the east that it is interesting that not only is he the fifth angel... Because five is the biblical number for grace, and this is God's grace being demonstrated in saving so many people in this chapter. But it's also interesting that he comes from, it says he ascends from the what direction? East. And who else is going to come from the east? Exactly. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes to earth, will come from the east to rescue the remnant of Israel. Now, the symbolism of a seal of protection upon God's elect is given to us elsewhere in the scripture. This isn't the only place we read about it. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 to 11, a man was told to put a mark on the foreheads of the righteous. And this was done as a protective measure from the doom that came upon the rest of the people of Jerusalem. So in Ezekiel 9, if you read that chapter, you will learn that that mark put upon those people who were the righteous was to protect them. Everyone else was wiped out except for them. The 144,000, I believe, will be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, the three young Jewish boys who would not Like the 144,000, they would not bow to the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. Just like these 144,000 will not bow to the image of the Antichrist. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were preserved, weren't they? Through the fire of persecution. And they emerged without even the smell of smoke. I mean, that's a real miracle in itself. Without even the smell of smoke on their garments. Now, although there will be other Jewish people who will be saved during the tribulation, not all of the Jewish people will be sealed, only 144,000 of them. And so, consequently, there will be a good number of Jewish people who will pay for their testimonies for Christ, you know, when they come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Many of them will give their lives unless they successfully manage to go into hiding someplace, such as Petra. Of Jordan. And one day we'll talk about that. So these, but these 144,000 are not going to be in hiding. We can't say that they're the ones who will be in hiding because, again, if they were in hiding, no one would be saved through their witness, right? They can't hide their light under a bushel. They'll be out in the world. And God is going to use them mightily as his witnesses, as we'll see in a few minutes. But before we get to that, I want to read something that Dr. John Phillips wrote in his book on Revelation. He says this, quote, Those sealed will go unscathed through the great tribulation. They will be a perpetual thorn in the side of the beast and a constant reminder to the devil that while millions may bow to his will, God still has him on a leash and says to him, Thus far and no farther The mobilized armies of the earth will not be able to touch a hair of the heads of these sealed ones The concentration camps and torture chambers of the beast's fearful inquisition will leave them unscathed the fire will not kindle upon them, nor the smell of smoke beyond their garments. The floods will not be able to drown them. The seal of God rests upon them, and they are saved and secure, come what may. They will be a living proof to the devil that not only is his secular power strictly limited by divine decree, but in the end he cannot win. No matter how many millions he liquidates in his insane rage, he is obviously under the control of God. So then, the 144,000 are sealed to defy the totality of Satan's secular domain. They are a reminder to him that every knee does not bow to him and that God is sovereign and in invincible control. End of quote. Okay, let's go on now and discuss their purpose purpose of the 144,000 Jews. Why does God have them divinely sealed other than to demonstrate his sovereign control over Satan? What, in other words, is the mission of these 144,000? Well, in verse 3, we find the clue for what what their mission is, because there, in verse 3, they are referred to as the servants of God, and the word servants is the Greek word Dulos. You've heard that word before, haven't you? Dulos. It's the same word that was used many times by the Apostle Paul and also by James um, to refer to themselves as servants of God or as bond servants, bond slaves of Jesus Christ. The primary function of a servant of God, regardless of his or her occupation, regardless of the age of In which he or she lives, whether it's in the church age or the tribulation age, the primary purpose of a servant of Jesus Christ is to communicate the gospel message of salvation and the grace of God. Otherwise, why even leave? them here. Just take them on to be in heaven. God leaves us here as his servants so we can communicate the gospel message to other people. So the mission of these 144,000 servants is that they are to be God's witnesses. These are the true witnesses of Jehovah. And guess what? They're all Jewish. Not a single Gentile among them. Now in the Old Testament days, the Jewish people were God's chosen people. They still are. And they were sovereignly chosen by him to fulfill three responsibilities. They all start with P. They were to preserve the scriptures, which they did. They were to produce the Messiah, which they did. Not really any credit to them. <laughs> but they did. And they were to proclaim the name of God among the Gentiles of the world. God chose the Jewish nation and I think he chose it because it's in the middle of the world if you you go out from Israel to the four corners of the earth Israel's the belly button of of the land masses of the world so that makes sense that they would go out from there to the four corners of the world he chose them to be a light to the Gentiles he chose them to be witnesses for him to the Gentile people and this was their mission and their responsibility and yet They tragically failed, at least in this third part of their mission, didn't they? By the time of Christ, they thought of Gentiles as as hardly anything better than a dog, dogs. They had a very low opinion of Gentiles, and very few of them, except the believing remnant, cared about witnessing to Gentiles. So rather than having influenced the nations for God, which was their responsibility, the heathen nations around them influenced them. And Israel took on their carnal ways and their idolatrous ways. Well, when Jesus Christ came, who is the true light of the world and the faithful witness, they didn't even know him, did they? Why didn't they know Jesus? Because they didn't really even know God. And so what did they do to him? Well, they they hated him so much that they crucified him. Then after his resurrection and at the time of his ascension, he turned to his disciples who represented his soon-to-be-formed church. And what did he say to them? He said, now you, in effect, now you will be my witnesses, not only here in Jerusalem and in Judah but to the uttermost parts of the earth. And for 2,000 years, Christ has left the church with the mission which the nation of Israel failed to accomplish. And so now our responsibility is to be witnesses of Christ and light bearers of truth to the world. However, living as we do, at what I believe is the end of the church age, the age of lukewarmness, and apostasy, and liberalism, it appears that we are going the way of Israel, which is exactly what the Bible predicted. It's not unexpected to God, he knew. The church is allowing the world to influence her more than she is influencing the world. Now, if this is the case with Christendom, before the rapture occurs, curse. Can you imagine how really apostate Christendom is going to be once all true believers are removed? I mean, there will be nobody left who is saved after the rapture. But Christendom will carry right on a large portion of it. So then, who, after the church is removed, who will be left to be God's witnesses and his light bearers of truth to a very, very, very dark world? Well, once again, God is going to call out Israel. And he will divinely protect 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes to be his ministers of the gospel message, his servants. Since the Jews, now think about how God planned all this out. He had them scattered to the four corners of the earth, right? The Jews are everywhere. They haven't all come back to Israel. Jewish people are everywhere and what languages do they speak in all these different countries they don't they won't have to go to language school they're already going to know the language of the people with whom they live God will be using them where they are this doesn't mean they all come out of Israel I think he's going to be using Jews everywhere in every country that they're in and they will be proclaiming the gospel message in languages that people can understand no matter where they live and this will be the time that the Lord Jesus Christ talked about. If you want to flip over to Matthew twenty four, the Olivet Discourse. Matthew twenty four fourteen, this is what he talked about when he predicted in Matthew twenty four, fourteen, that one of the signs, remember his disciples had asked him what will be the sign of your coming? And here in these two chapters he's talking about the signs which would precede his second coming he said that one of them would be that the gospel message would be preached in all of the world look at that with me Matthew 24:14 Jesus says and now notice please that this is after he talked about the the four Signs of the four horsemen of the apocalypse when he said that there would be false Christs, there would be wars and rumors of wars. Then he said, you know, there would be famines and pestilences and death. And then he talked about many would be martyred. That's the fifth seal. All right, now look. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then... And then shall the end come. Now, you know, many, many Christians mistakenly think that Matthew 24 and 25, known as the Olivet Discourse, that these two chapters deal with the church. But they do not deal with the church. The church is not anywhere seen in the Olivet Discourse. If you want to get, we have a tape album on this discourse if you're interested in studying it. But Israel is mentioned. When he's talking about the, the first sign he gives is the coming of the Antichrist. By then the church is gone. The church is not in this discourse. Israel's in this discourse. The church is not going to succeed in getting the gospel to all the world before Christ's second coming. But... I mean, the church has done a good job in, in, in attempting to do that, but she will not complete that job. But the 144,000 Jews will. They will complete what we have begun. When they have successfully reached every single nation, kindred, people, and language group, then, Jesus said, shall the end come. That's when he shall return. And we know that the 144,000 sealed Jewish witnesses will be successful in their God-given assignment because of the great multitude, which John sees next in this chapter 7, standing before the very throne room of heaven. So in answer to the question that was stated at the end of chapter 6, who shall be able to stand, we find that not only will these 144,000 Jews be able to stand firm, During the tribulation due to their protective divine sealing, but also even though they will seal their testimonies with their own lives, there is going to be an innumerable group of saved Gentiles who will be able to stand. And not only do they stand firm for their faith in Christ, even in the face of death. But they are seen standing before the throne room of God. And I think it's very interesting that the Holy Spirit inspired John to use that word stand. Listen with me as I read about it in verses 7 to 19. John says, after this, after what? That's the same word, metatata, that he uses throughout the book of Revelation. So he's saying, after God sealed the 144,000 Jews, after this, I, John, beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood. Who shall be able to stand? (laughs) This group stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a, what kind of voice? Loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir thou knowest, in other words, that was John's way of saying, I don't know, but you do, (laughs) and he said to me, these are they which came out of, what, say it, great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. As we consider... I can't find my outline. But as we consider this second group of people who will be able to stand during the time of tribulation, even though they lose their lives, we're going to look at their position, first of all, then their praise, then their persons, then their privilege, and then their provision. And because you're getting really nervous thinking of the time and how in the world are we going to cover all of those, let me just tell you that we have talked about these Kind of like these people last week we talked a lot about tribulation saints even though these are great tribulation saints so and we've even touched upon some of these verses already so I'm going to fly through these really quick so don't get too nervous. First of all, let's look at their position John's focus remember which had been back on earth since the opening of the sixth seal, which brought about that massive shaking of the earth. His focus is now turned back toward heaven. So we're constantly going up and down from earth to heaven. He's back in heaven now where he notices this great multitude which no man could number standing before heaven's throne and before the Lamb who is Jesus Christ. And we're told that this multitude comes from all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. Now this is a fact, if you think about it, which should be really encouraging to missionaries perhaps a missionary in some country who has been working with a remote tribe somewhere and hasn't reached a single person for Christ. And it may be encouraging to those who are attempting desperately, as Wycliffe Bible translators are and some other mission efforts to get the Bible translated into every known language, every mother tongue, so that people can read the Bible in their own heart language. And it should also be encouraging to those who know of groups of people somewhere, some remote where, who haven't had a missionary or a gospel witness for maybe many, many years, since maybe their ancestors turned from the truth. So this... Why is this encouraging? Because this verse tells us very clearly that one day, every single group of people in existence on the earth, no matter how remote they might be, they will have the opportunity to spend eternity with Christ. Now, not all will accept him, but there will be representatives from every group who will. And this tells us that every group, every people will have the opportunity. Now, how do we know that these people will accept Christ? Well, for one thing, we know because of their position. Where are they? (laughs) They are standing before the very throne room of God and before Jesus Christ, the Lamb. This tells us that they are saved or they wouldn't be there. Furthermore, they are clothed in white robes, and that speaks of righteousness. Not their righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. And they're waving what? Palm branches, and that speaks of victory. Then in addition to these evidences of the fact that they're saved, they also sing about or speak about salvation in verses um, 10 to 12. And that's where we look at their praise. This innumerable multitude of saved people attribute their salvation to God and to the Lamb. It's wonderful to realize that despite the wrath of God that will be poured out on the earth at this time, and despite the satanic deception of the Antichrist and his wicked political system, and despite the false spiritual condition of the worldwide apostate ecumenical church, which will exist at that time, and despite the tremendously increased risk of losing one's life for doing so, yet it's wonderful to know that there will be great masses of people saved all over the earth by way of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ it says that their robes were washed in the blood of the lamb you know regardless of the age That somebody lives in which somebody lives. Regardless, people are always saved the same way. God's way of salvation has been the same before the cross and after the cross. Looking forward to the time when the lamb would shed his blood. Looking back at the time when the lamb did shed his blood. Always it's the same. It's by way of man's faith in the lamb's sacrifice. His shed blood for their sin. Now, the joy of this innumerable host of people from all over the globe will be so intense, which is symbolized by their loud voice, that those who are standing around in that throne room just won't be able to to stand it anymore and what do they do they have to join in so they fall on their faces and they likewise praise god as they present to him yet another sevenfold doxology this is a little bit different than the doxology of praise that we saw in revelation 5 13 and i won't get into the reason for that but it doesn't matter it's all god is due all of these things blessing glory wisdom thanksgiving honor power and might be unto God forever and ever so that's their praise now let's look at their persons as I've already mentioned this innumerable host of people will be derived from all nations all ethnic groups all tribal groups and all language groups of the entire world and this means that by far the large majority of them will be Gentiles however there will also be some Jews among them Because we know that the 144,000 sealed Jews will reach some of their own people. But the Jews who are not sealed or who have not gone into hiding somewhere will likewise give their lives. We are told that two-thirds of the Jews will perish in the book of Zechariah. So some of these will be Jews. I am calling them Gentiles just for the sake of my little package outline, but we know there will be some Jews among them. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit could not have inspired John to write the word all. All nations and ethnic groups and languages, right? Now, by the fact that these people are not under the altar even though some of the pictures I used were showed them under the altar. That was from the other group. I didn't have a picture of these. They're not all under the altar as the souls of Revelation chapter 6 were. We learned that they are not part, by the fact that they're not under the altar, we learned that they are not part of that group of people that we read about last week who will lose their lives for Christ during the beginning of the tribulation. Rather, these come out of the latter half of the tribulation. And what is the latter half called? The great tribulation. Remember the first three and a half years are called the beginning of sorrows. That's where we read about those who died and were under the altar. Now this group are martyred during the latter half or the great tribulation. These are actually the fellow servants and the brethren that the souls under the altar in chapter 6 were told would be killed. Remember when they were told to wait a little season until their fellow servants and brethren would be killed likewise. So these are they that we're reading about now. Now by the fact that they are standing before God's throne rather than being seated around God's throne, we know further that they're a separate group from the 24 elders who, as we have taught, represent you and I, the church-age saints. So... Also, if these martyred saints here in this latter half of chapter 7 were either martyred Old Testament saints, as some people say, or are martyred church saints, then John would have recognized at least some of them, but he didn't know any of them. He had to ask this elder who they are, and that's why that one of the 24 elders told him. In fact, because one of those 24 elders did tell John who they were, we don't even need to speculate. We don't need to say, well, maybe they are these people or maybe they're these. We're told very clearly who they are, just like we were told who the 144,000 are. The elder explained to John that these are they which came out of the great tribulation, and they have washed, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So who are these people? From every tongue, nation, ethnic group, all over the world. They are what we would call the great tribulation martyred saints. You know, one day, all distinctions between various groups of people will be eliminated. They will cease to exist one day. But that will not be until the eternal state in the heavenly kingdom, where there will no longer be Jew and Gentile and tribulation saint and church saint and even millennial saints. You know, people who will be born during the millennial kingdom will have to be born again just as you and I. They will not be born just because they're born in the millennial kingdom. They will not be born saved. They will have to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. And amazingly, even though he's there in their midst, many of them will not be born again. Incredible, isn't it? But anyway, there there are right now distinctions between different groups of people, and God is using these distinctions for his own purposes and his own plans. But one day, all those distinctions will be eliminated. Well, what is their privilege? Their marvelous privilege is that they will be able to stand before God's throne, in verse 15, and serve him in his temple day and night. That's a wonderful privilege, that they will be able to serve God all the time throughout eternity. But an even greater privilege will be that he shall dwell among them. They will know the joy of God's presence every single moment of every day and every night throughout all of eternity. And I think that will more than compensate, don't you, for the misery that they suffered while having to dwell temporarily under the reign of, a, uh, of Satan-possessed Antichrist down here on earth. Their bravery... And to be a great tribulation believer, believe me, will involve a lot of bravery. Their bravery in refusing to worship the beast and refusing to take his number upon them so that they will be able to eat and drink and buy and sell. Can you imagine going to Walmart or just to go to the grocery store and get the basic foods and not being allowed to purchase anything unless you took the mark of the beast? These people will refuse to do that, so they won't have any of these things. They won't have food and shelter. And uh, so their great bravery will be rewarded in a special way with the great privilege of living eternally with God and serving him. And another special privilege that they will have is that their provisions, they couldn't get their provisions down here on earth During the great tribulation. But in heaven, their provisions will be met by the lamb who will shepherd them. And he will satisfy them with every good thing. The lamb is also the shepherd. Another paradox of the scripture. Jesus Christ will continue to provide for those who are eternally his. He will feed them and he will lead them, and he will graciously provide for their every need. And that is a fact which stands in stark contrast to the famine conditions and the blood-soaked rule down here on earth under the Antichrist. Because these people did refuse the mark of the beast, they, as I said, will not be able to buy anything, and this would leave them without food, so they will go hungry. It will leave them without drink, so they will go thirsty. They will be thirsty. Their homes, very possibly, will be taken from them. Perhaps because they won't be able to pay their taxes or pay their mortgages. Or perhaps just because the Antichrist tells anybody who wants to take the home of a believer that they can just go ahead and take it. And, so the, and also because they don't have homes... Or shelters which they won't be able to afford or will be taken from them, the sun will just beat down on them. The elements will beat down on them unmercifully. And of course, we know that the heat of the sun is going to be increased as we look at some of these judgments. We'll see that. And so they will be further tortured. But the lamb who will eternally be in their presence because it tells us that he's in the midst of the throne in verse 17, he will take it upon himself To feed them and to lead them to the living waters, the living fountains of waters, so that they will never hunger again and they will never thirst anymore. And he will also see to it that they will never again be scorched, tells us, by the heat of the sun. Furthermore, their tears will be permanently wiped away by who? The Lamb? No, it doesn't actually say that. It says that their tears will be wiped away by God himself. Look at the verse, end of verse 17. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. You know, shortly before this scene, these people would have been enduring the hardships of life during the Great Tribulation, which I, you and I can't even begin to fathom how hard life will be. And they would have spent many, many long hours, I'm sure, in tears. As they would have watched their loved ones, perhaps, precede them in death. Or worse, as they would watch their loved ones take the mark of the beast. That would be worse. Because they would know they were eternally dooming themselves to hell. And they probably would spend much of their time weeping as they would watch their children slowly dying of starvation. And they would have nothing to feed them. Or they may have cried in terrible fear whenever they heard their enemies' footsteps approaching their hiding place. And especially when those enemies would find their hiding places and then slaughter them one by one. But for their willingness to give their own lives for the cause of Christ, God himself, it tells us, will gently wipe away all tears from their eyes. You know, this great provision is going to be provided for you and I as church saints as well. But you know, it will not be provided for us until after the great white throne judgment and after the new heaven and the new earth. You can read about it in Revelation 21.4. That's when our tears will be wiped away. But they get a special privilege in having their tears wiped away almost as soon as they get to heaven after they've been martyred. Now, in our next lesson we are going to discuss the opening, Lord willing, of the seventh seal, which will introduce the seven trumpet judgments in which the wrath of God is going to increase, like labor pains, not only in intensity, but also in scope, you know, further over the world. So it's good, isn't it? It's good that we've had this parenthetical break in chapter 7, In order to remind us of the fact that even in his wrath, God still remembers mercy. And he will reach forth his loving hand and he will seal 144,000 Jews to be his witnesses to the world. And they will be very successful. Some people... Uh, say that there will be like 144,000 Apostle Pauls. Can you imagine that? They will be very successful in their evangelism because we know that an innumerable, and uncountable multitude of people from all over the world will be brought into God's kingdom through their wit- witness. On the other hand, it's very sad to think about the other multitudes who will not be saved there will be even more people who will reject the true Savior and trust the beast instead. But that really is nothing new, is it? That is nothing new because most people today do exactly the same thing when they reject Jesus Christ. You know, one principle remains consistent throughout the Scripture and throughout every age, and that is that men must individually choose to accept or to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know not to accept him is to automatically reject him because we are born rejecting him. We are born as sinners. Regardless of the time period in which a man or a woman, a boy or a girl lives, he or she must make his own decision. He must count the cost... <clears throat> and in some ages, in some places, it's a little higher than in others. But he must count the cost, and he must choose his own eternal destiny. And I'm very delighted to be able to say this, and I'm sure you're delighted about it as well, that there will be such a tremendous soul harvest for heaven during the worst time this world will ever see during the tribulation period. It will be the time of the greatest spiritual revival in all history. So that's the good news, right? Next week, the bad news as we get into the trumpet judgment.